You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. So hello everyone. Uh, this is Mike. Uh, we got Varun Shankar, who's the producer of the Limited Upside podcast. On the other line, we're trying this locker room chat again. Last week, I think was quite cool. Although I'm sorry for those who listen on the podcast and the volume wasn't so great. We're going to try to figure to do this better this time. Ben is not here right now, but Varun is. Varun, what's up? Not much, not much. Just you know, hanging out. Yeah, hanging out in the car, I believe, right? That that's correct. Yeah, in the middle of a middle of a car. Uh, we're on. Is this what? This is hour six now. Probably further than that, to be honest. So you're you uh, are the beat writer for the Di- the Diamondback. Yeah, that's correct. Right. Uh, women's basketball beat reporter. For for at the University of Maryland, and they're playing in the Big Ten tournament, which is in Indianapolis, which is a long way from here. That's correct. Or I guess a long way from where you are. Um, anywhere, honestly. Long way from anywhere. I mean, it's it's not a long way from other towns in Indiana, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's where your attention is. Uh, I'm in Long Island. It's 60 degrees today, which is unbelievable. Oh, it's great uh, Unbelievable. I have to be honest that I have sort of taken this time to work on the book, so... I did watch the All-Star game. I can't say I watch it with the same level of precision that I tend to watch a regular season game. Um, but I did watch it. Um, did you like it? Did you enjoy it? Did it feel weird, the whole thing? I mean, it was okay. I mean, uh, I don't know. They probably shouldn't have had it, to be honest, right? It's so a I, situation I thought that, too. But then I, I listened to, I think, the Brian Windhorst podcast who was saying – that, oh, yeah, by the way, like, 150 NBA players just hung out of Miami over the break. And so that at least at least gives you, like, sort of the idea that, like, maybe there was some value in having them in an NBA-controlled environment. I don't know. Yeah, but there's also, like, the – when you bring the event to Atlanta, now you're kind of, like, sanctioning it. You saw there was a bunch of parties that were spiking up and using the NBA's name and likeness for it. You know. Yeah, it seems like an unnecessary risk to bring, especially. I mean, obviously, I mean, this is more from just a league standpoint. But you have the best players all gathered. It takes one infection to spread through everyone, and now the entire season is derailed. And we nearly got that, of course. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> because because of uh, yeah, we nearly got that because uh, of the two seventy sixers players who I, mean, I do feel kind of I mean I don't feel totally bad for them because they had a private plane. But like imagine like they basically were in Atlanta for like a day and then they just had to quarantine the whole time and then go home. Seems like kind of lame. Can't be ideal. Can't be ideal. So did you did you watch the game itself? Uh, parts of it here and there, but not all the way through. No. Okay. I honestly didn't know it was happening until I saw tweets about it as it was happening. So the game itself I didn't find too exciting. Um, what did you think of the sort of pageantry of it all? It's, I mean, you know, I, I like the Elam ending, to be honest. I think that's a... So let's talk about the Elam ending. Um, last time, it was quite cool. This time, I don't know, it seemed like it fell a little flat this time with, like, there being a blowout. But do you, you still like it? Yeah, I think, I mean, the appeal of it is less that. I mean, it's just, it's obviously better if it's a close game, but there's, it could have been a blowout in terms of, you know, if it was a regular game, it would have still been a blowout. It was kind of cool to see Dame hit the walk-off shot to win it rather than just a walk-off shot when the game's already out of balance, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, I had this question where I was thinking about this with someone at the time. I feel like if you put the Elam ending in a real game, and it's, Maybe it's not that big a blowout, right? But it's still maybe it's like a ten point game, or like an eight point game, right? 
wouldn't wouldn't it make sense to just shoot half court shots if you have like if you're Damian Lillard like wouldn't like people were like oh you only did that because it was the All Star game but like I'm thinking to myself like the upside of being able to make like just walk up there and shoot a 35 footer to end the game seems like it's really high and so it, I feel like these games with the Elam ending unless they're like super close they would just sort of devolve into these three point tricks and I feel like that's that's just as much not basketball as what happens at the end of games right now. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you'd still, I mean, only a couple of guys can shoot those shots reliably, right? I mean, it's, it's not everyone that can do it. And maybe, maybe it would turn to that. But, man, I'm so tired with the the end of games. The last 30 seconds of any basketball game that's within five points either way, within ten points either way, it's just a foul fest, and I, I hate it. It's it's needlessly extending the game when you know, even if it's it, it's a less than one percent chance. I mean, there was a game that I was covering where a coach called a timeout with twelve seconds left and his team down ten, and it just feels it, it just feels unnecessary. Yeah, I guess so. I guess my response would be like, you don't have to watch the end of the game if you think it's unnecessary. If they're not, the game's gonna end. I never understand this. Like, okay, so the game isn't officially over. Like, we can turn it off whenever we want if we think the game is decided. Well, like, I mean, you got to cover it to, like, you know, put in stats and stuff at the article. So, yeah. Well, that, then that's good. That means you have more time to do it and get it in. I feel like it's good for writers. Um, I mean, if they, but then, like, the stats might change at the last second, you know. If they're at 51% field goal shooting and you have that in, but you have to change it at the last second, you know. Okay. All right. I'm just saying, like, I, I, I like the concept. I think I think it there may be, like, even before that Lillard shot, like, all they were doing in that All-Star game was shooting threes. Now, I guess they were doing that because they need the Durant's team need to catch up. But I don't see why that, like, the incentives really tilt so that it's better, you have a better chance if you just sort of shoot a lot of threes and try to knock them out that way. I feel like. I know maybe this hasn't been – I haven't watched any TBT games, so maybe this isn't how it's working the TBT, but I feel like in the NBA, stars are not going to be able to resist the like, sort of 30-foot shot that could win the game in the best, and at worst it sort of just leaves you already plenty ahead. So I, I ended that a little more skeptical of the Elam ending than I was coming in, let's just say. A little more skeptical. But that's just me. Um, it seems like Varun's and got a little bit of trouble. Um, I'm curious if anyone else here, like, what do y'all think of the Elam ending? I know um, it's very popular for, like, kind of our Twitter audience, but I, I definitely – I'm not someone who thinks it should be, like – Is Varun, are you there? All right, am I back? You, you still Hello? there? Yeah, you still there? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is going great. Can you hear me? Okay. Well, I don't, that's the all-star game. Um, I do want to kind of make a point that about the all-star game. And that is, can we stop being so goddamn jaded about the dunk contest? I, I have to say, like, I really don't understand why this competition between players who can do truly ridiculous things in the air is so anchored to its past, <clears throat> is so, you know, just, it seems like we're kind of talking about, oh, this judging scoring was bad, you know, this, uh, what was with that, that, I've seen that dunk before, and Oh, that didn't look that great. And it's like, I don't know what it is, like, why why we do this, but I just think it's kind of remarkable as an exhibition to be able to see the creativity, the athleticism, the skill, you know, to be able to watch it. Like, these are these are things that nobody else can do. And yet all we can talk about is why it sucks. And I have to say that I just do not – I really do not understand it. I, it seems to me like if we like take a step back and kind of observe it for what it is, this is such a cool event. 
So I don't understand why there's so much jadedness towards it. Maybe it's because the best players sort of sit out. Uh, I, I think John Morant may have tweeted something along the lines of, you know, with the scoring and Cassius Stanley's first dunk. He said, like, this is why I'm never going to do it. I think that'd be a shame because, like, it's it's a showcase of athleticism whether you win or lose. And these are the best athletes in the world, and these are things that they never get to really do in a game. You know, you don't get to, like, sort of throw it between the legs dunk in a game. So this is, like, our only chance to see stuff like that. And I just think it could be a really great celebration of the game, and instead it's devolved into something that has too much historical weight of itself. And people complain about scoring, and people complain about things that they haven't seen before. And I don't. Why did it get this way? I don't understand. Uh, I mean, I think it's. Bruin, are you there? Can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, are you a dunk contest fan? Uh, mildly depends on the year. It depends. Like this year, I, I if I don't know at least like if, if I knew two of the people participating in the third, I had you know I vaguely heard of. So I was like, I'm probably not gonna tune in for this but it's not really an indictment of the dunk contest but I think it's when when the best players in the sport don't show up it kind of sh- seems like they don't care about it so why should the fans if that makes any sense I mean but dunking is not like an NBA skill in a game like the best dunkers are not the best players so I don't understand why the best players have to be in the dunk contest that's true, but at least, like, the – I mean, I, I think some of it's just, like, name recognition. But a guy like a Zion Williamson, who we know is a powerful dunker at the very least and, and an incredible jumper, at the, you know, although he didn't show it on that one play. Um, I, I think that someone like him joining the game would uh, – joining the dunk contest would make it at least a little bit more entertaining. Yeah, I think – and certainly, I guess, your point, it would sort of – pique my interest a little bit more right from the start. But if I'm already watching, like, I, I can't understand, like, kind of watching that. If you're already watching and you see uh, when the, the sort of Anthony Simons grabbing a ball from a Nerf group 12 feet up and then dunking it, and he's, what, like 6'2", six, 6'3", six, right? I can't understand, like, seeing him do that and, and shrugging. You know, that was – that was a dunk that, like, remember when Dwight Howard did the sticker dunk and everyone was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. I guess that also got a low score, so maybe that's a bad example. But, you know, Simons basically did that, and he's, like, nine inches shorter than Dwight. And he grabbed the ball and dunked it rather than just slamming a sticker on the backboard. Like, and that was only 13 years ago. I mean, that I just think that's incredible. And I, I don't know. Like, I know, like, he's not a household name, but, like, just doesn't that sort of open your eyes as to how amazing even someone who's, like, not a really household name and what they can do? Am I just being, like, too nice to these players? I, I don't know. It just seems – it seems like it's, like, it, it's an individual creativity that is just so cool to witness. And it's so funny to me that that's, that dunk got a lower score than him literally mimicking a dunk that Tracy McGrady did 20 years ago in a T-Mac jersey. Yeah, the scoring is a whole different conversation. I think, I mean, there are only so many dunks you can do. So I I feel like that's one of the reasons why people are like, okay, I've seen this before. Even if it's incredibly cool to see in the moment, there's only so many ways you can do it. I mean, but for me, I mean, an in-game dunk over someone, that's, I mean. Yeah. I mean, that's a different kind of just in terms of the speed that it has to be done. I feel, and I, f- I feel like, you know, this year it felt like there was less buzz around the All-Star game than there ever has in the last 10 years. I mean, it, it for, really does feel like, for obvious reasons, right? There's nobody yeah. in the state. And so I, may, may, I think that definitely played into it because, I mean, people have appreciated great dunk contests in the past. I think, obviously, everyone points to the Zach Levine, Aaron Gordon ones, but... I feel like the dunk contest is regularly pretty well, pretty well received, except for yeah. maybe this year it was a little bit more criticized than most. I, I feel I don't know. Maybe I disagree, but I just feel like it, it's always there's always a lingering sense of disappointment unless it's Eric Gordon versus Zach Levine. Uh, Alex Sturm wants to speak. Alec, are Mike. you there? Hey, Mike. How you doing? 
What's up? What's up? What do you got? Um, oh, no, I was just – I've noticed that a lot of people have kind of been using this year's dunk contest as part of the whole, like, oh, the dunk contest isn't what it used to be narrative. And even though it's not as good as it used to be and this year also sucked, I don't think that's completely fair because okay. this year's sucking was kind of because of the pandemic and not so much the dunk contest needs to shine, in my opinion. So you you think that a lot of that had to do with um, the names involved? If it wasn't yeah. if it if it wasn't if there were bigger names involved, th- there would have been bigger names involved if it hadn't been a pandemic and people hadn't been scared to go. Um, well, did you see the John Morant tweet though? Oh no! What did John? What did John so Morant say? John ja Morant. You remember last year they had the whole Dwayne Wade controversy scoring-wise that handed Derek Jones Jr. So John Moran, I believe, said something along the lines of, that's why I'm never doing the dunk contest after, oh, right. I want to say, Cashel Stanley's dunk. Um, and, like, so to me, like, that suggests that he the pandemic wasn't really necessarily what drove him away. And I, we don't know why Zion Williamson didn't do it, but – you know, maybe it's more the the scoring, and I I think the pandemic may explain like kind of why we didn't get excited about it because it's hard to get excited about anything in All Star Weekend. Um, yeah, here's a tweet. He's, he quote tweets Taylor Rooks saying the dunk contest scoring is literally never right, and he quote tweets saying, "Yeah, reason I'm not doing it." Oh yeah, no, I saw that. No, I think you're right then. Actually, I'll I'll change my opinion. I agree with you. The dunk contest is done. We need to replace it with horse or something. <laughs> Completely. Oh, man. I think it's over. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that worked out really well the last time they canceled the dunk contest, huh? When did they cancel it? I'm, I'm pretty sure. Oh, I don't, I don't oh know. yeah. The, at 1997, they didn't have a dunk contest that, from, in 1998 or 1999, 2000, when they had Vince Carter. That's when they brought it back. Oh, I remember that, yeah. I remember yeah. that's a YouTube video. I just, you know what it is? Like, I think some of it is the name recognition. I agree. I think the three-point contest has gotten a jolt because Steph Curry is in it. Yeah. And so it's like uh, the best three-point shooters. The dunk contest, I mean, for, for some time it's been sort of rising stars. You know, a lot of times you'd see guys who were much younger that became stars. I mean, you look at Zach Levine playing in the All-Star game, and he was a big part of this. Uh, it hasn't really been, like, the best players since Jordan and Dominic Wilkins. At the same time, I mean, I said this to Thurman earlier, but, like, dunking is, in and of itself, is not a basketball skill, really. Like, the skill you need to be able to jump 12 feet to grab a ball off a Nerf hoop, or, in Aaron Gordon, Zach Levine's case, to jump over uh, the Orlando Magic's mascot or do that spin or whatever – like, that's not a basketball skill. That's just a whole different form of athleticism. So I don't really see why we can't get our heads around, like, the best dunkers not necessarily being the best players. I mean, Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine weren't the best players in the le- among the best players in the league when they put I, on their show. No, I think that those are some interesting points you touched on. Because when you compare it to the uh, three-point contest, I think there are kind of two things for me. The dunk contest is all like the extra stuff. It's the in the margins. It's the it's the judges scoring. It's the props. It's the theatrics. Whereas the three point shootout is just pure basketball shooting. They introduced this sprite deep shot. And everyone, no one likes it. It's pure like shooting the three point contest. Right. Yeah. So, so my question to you is kind of: Do you think do you think the change in popularity over the past like twenty years? Do you think that has anything to do with, like, the three-point being, like, more popular with, like, the Warriors and the Rockets? Or, or no, it's just also. I think I think that's probably a big factor. I've never been a huge fan of the three-point contest for the exact reason I think a lot of people like it, which is it feels a little bit more like basketball is sort of what your point is. Um, mm-hmm. And it feels like a little bit more of, like, a common thing. Like, we've all kind of run around and done shooting drills on our – on our backyard or wherever, you know, we can all shoot. Um, and then I do agree, like the, the three point era has made it more interesting. Plus, but I, and plus like the, the best players are in the three point competition. Um, but to me, like, that's why I like the dunk contest more. The fact that it's less something that I feel like I can do, but I think for a lot of people, they like 
watching great shooting because they can envision themselves, even though they're not as good a shooter as Steph Curry, they can kind of envision themselves having gone on like a run of great shooting in their lives. Or they can make a three-point shot. But there are very few people in the world who can do what the people in the dunk contest do. Now, for me, that's why I love it. But I think for a lot of people, basketball in a lot of sense is sort of a wish fulfillment exercise. You're watching it kind of envisioning yourself doing it. That's part of the appeal. So I think that's a key thing that's happened with the three-point contest um, being more interesting to a lot of people. But um, I don't know. That's just me. No, I think that's all good. It's kind of the um, the I don't want to say denial. People are still in a little bit of denial. Oh, I would have gone to the league if not for whatever mm-hmm. happened. People want to live vicariously through these athletes when it comes to sports. Yeah, I think that's a big reason why Steph Curry is such a popular player um, and such a thrilling player to watch. Obviously, what he does is so unique and nobody can do it. But he doesn't look like the sort of physically imposing giant. So he looks like a David versus a bunch of Goliaths. But that's that. Um, what do you th- Any questions about the second half of the season coming up um, by anyone yeah. here? Or Yes. Okay. What do we oh. got? <laughs> no, you're like, you're like a really good writer. I read a lot of your stuff. So I well, have thank you. questions for you. Who, okay, uh, no, up? I loved your, uh, your KD piece on his Achilles we have. And like, that oh, was thank awesome. you. Okay. Yeah, what um like what West teams are you really, really looking at to like kind of make a push and like challenge maybe one of the LA squads or Utah? I'm I'm curious about Utah just in general whether they can keep this up. Um, as far as teams that are sort of kind of surging, I think you have to look at Dallas. Dallas has played really well recently. Uh, I think you have to look at Denver as they start to get guys back. Do they make up or catch up to? Some of the teams that have gotten a head start, like a Phoenix, who is playing really well, but also, you know, has a really nice sort of solid mix of talent, and it fits well together. Whereas teams like Denver and Dallas uh, have kind of had players in and out of the lineup, sort of this confusion. Do those teams gel? Uh, because I mean, we've seen this over the last few weeks. Like Jokic and Luka Doncic are as good, if not better, than they were coming into the year. Just because they got off to slow starts doesn't mean that they're not playing super well. Uh, one of the other interesting things is, uh, you know, what happens to Portland when C.J. McCollum and Yusuf Nurkic come back? Because I think the obvious answer would be, oh, they're just going to kind of keep killing it, and Lillard's going to be just as good. But I think when this has happened in the past, usually Lillard plays his best when they're short-handed. And he can kind of carry you in a season like he has been for a short stretch. And then he doesn't necessarily either want to or can sort of keep that up when all the players is back. Like he kind of has this like gear that he knows he needs to kind of have in the reserve, but he can't sustain over a full season. Um, and that's no, there's, there's no doubt to him. Like that's just the type of player he is. Um, that's not like, I and mean, this is quite an incredible year, but I, I think, this certainly happened to them a couple of years ago when they made their finals conference finals run. By the end of that postseason, CJ McCollum was doing just as much as Lillard was doing. Lillard kind of had an early peak before he sort of played more like a traditional normal superstar than the supernova guy. I wonder what will happen when they get their guys back. Like, can Lillard continue to be this Lillard? Was it even make sense for him to continue to be this Lillard? Can McCollum, who was honestly having a career year. Like he should have been an all-star if he had stayed healthy. Can he pick that back up? You know, I don't know if those things are going to happen. So, I don't know. The, the West is interesting. And the other the other sort of little pesky thing going on there is, I don't think the Clippers have played that great over the last three or four weeks. I'm with you. I don't, I don't, I don't like them. What else do you like about them? I don't, I don't trust them. I don't think they, they're that different from last year. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say the whole point guard thing about oh they need a point guard because I'm more worried about their rim pressure. They don't they don't generate that many free throws, they don't get generate that much that many field goals at the rim. And I also don't like what T Lou has done and I know he's saving adjustments for the playoffs, but I still don't like what he's done with the defense and how he's kinda changed nothing. What what has he been doing the defense that he didn't like? they're they're like seventeenth in defensive efficiency, I'm pretty sure. Or like 16th or 15th. I'm gonna and look when you look right at that now. roster with uh with 
what with Kawhi and Paul George, you gotta be better than like middling. I don't know if they're that bad. Um, oh yeah, on clearing the last, they're twenty first. It's interesting. Um, that seems to me like to be. I, I can't believe that will continue. Like, I know I, – I find that hard to believe. I mean, what are they doing really badly on defense? Um, you know, last year they were quite good in half-court defense and just got killed in transition. And that was a reflection of the talent they had, but also the lack of continuity or lack of trust which is in the the area of the game that most relied on sort of instinct and collaboration, they were the worst. And when they were able to set up and then like kind of use their individual defensive talent, that was when they were the best. Uh, this year, I, I didn't realize they were that low. Um, I don't know yeah, what's they're... up with that. I, I think that they will get better. The, the question of like sort of do they have a guy who can get to the rim is interesting because obviously their offense has been really good, but it's been very much powered by great three-point shooting, uh, which may or may not kind of continue. And every time I hear that, that sort of critique, I think to myself, well, wait a minute, isn't that what Kawhi Leonard does? Like isn't that the whole point of having a Kawhi Leonard is that he's basically a rim attacker on its own? You know, that's – you build a lot of spacing around him. That's what Toronto did. You let him do his thing. You know, he is sort of this, like, human free throw unto himself. But he hasn't been this year. No. His free throw attempts are down. His shooting at the rim is down. And it does make me wonder, I know, like, it's a little sacrilege to say, but is it possible that Kawhi Leonard has peaked already? Oh, I wouldn't get mad at you for saying that at all. I think that's a fair point. I, and if I feel yeah. like if Kawhi Leonard is only pretty good at attacking the basket, if he's only sort of if his mid range jumper is now his like go to shot rather than his counter shot, you know, if he can't just sort of chisel through people, if he's being forced to sort of turn around and shoot over the top more, uh, the whole structure of the team doesn't make any sense the same way now. It is built around the premise that Kawhi Leonard, when it matters, is going to just kind of get downhill as easily against anybody as much as he wants. And if you yeah. can't do that, then, I mean, yeah, then they are, like, at the mercy of their three-point shooting, and they don't have that sort of rim attacker. Whether you bring in, I don't know, like, you bring in a guy who's pretty good at getting to the basket who's not a star at the trade down, I'm like, okay, let's say you bring in, like, Eric Bledsoe, right? I'm trying to think of, like, kind of guards that get downhill. You know, they, they're not going to trade for Dan Schroeder, but it feels like that's the type of player that we're talking about, right? Whether it's a point guard or not, like you're talking about somebody who can kind of get to the basket. That's not yeah. going to solve the underlying problem of Kawhi Leonard now being only pretty good at getting downhill versus great. And I feel like there's almost nothing. That, they, the only way that they solve that is if Kawhi Leonard is really holding this in reserve for the playoffs. So you think... You think that if Kawhi's not attacking the rim, then the three-pointer isn't consistent. And Well, no, you're right. Because if you think of a team like Utah, right? And if you say, how does Utah... Utah's getting all these great three-pointers. How do they generate all these threes? It's because of Gobert and Gobert's rim presence and his gravity rolling. And if um, and if the Clippers don't have a guy like Gobert who creates that kind of panic with the defense at the rim, then maybe their three-point shooting just isn't that sustainable. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, because I have to look at I haven't looked at sort of the number of times that they've actually touched the paint. But when watching them, it certainly feels like most of their threes are coming when they start to drive and then they sort of step out and throw it out. They're not really getting all the way down low and then coming out. Like, even though this is a post-up, is no longer a post-up league, like, you still, it's still, if you can get downhill and then kick and swing it, that makes you a much more dangerous three-point shooting team. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're not really getting enough of that right now, and that's not really Paul George's game either. Uh, I don't think it, he's having, again, he's having a really good season, but he, he's not someone where, like, kind of in the thick of the battle when you're playing one-on-one, like, can he beat a switch? Can he get downhill at the worst, at the most difficult time? That's not really his game either. I wonder if, like, sort of one medium uh, way that they can solve this and – 
I don't know if this would be supported by the numbers. Like, I think that it's been better for the lineups overall to have it this way. But I do think that if this continues to be something that is a challenge for them, if their three-pointers can stop dropping, I think they should look at start, at switching and uh, putting Vicha Zubac in the starting rotation. I knew you'd say that. Uh, because I think that they've lost they've lost sort of the chemistry of the pick-and-roll, of the Zubac-Leonard pick-and-roll. That was a really good way for them to get downhill, quote-unquote, last year. Um, and so I wonder if it's worth looking into uh, switching that up in playoff time, whether maybe there's too much shooting on the floor and not enough attacking, whether it may more, make more sense to have Ibaka play off the bench at, the, at key points. I'm not sure it necessarily would change the minute distribution. I just think that might be a way to solve that. Uh, yeah, like uh, Noah says, gives some rim – Grabbing. No, you want to you, you talk. No, what's up? Hi. So, yeah, a thing about uh, Kawhi. So, the numbers don't exactly back this up. But I feel like based on what I've watched this year versus last year, this year, like, obviously, you know, he likes to get to his spots. He doesn't move much, like, getting to his spots. You know, he kind of just comes down the court and eventually stops jogging at, like, the elbow versus last year. I feel like he was moving a lot uh, east-west before getting into his spots. And, you know, even that would was be, like, uh, altering the defense. I just feel like he's not – just it's just a, a lot of shot-making and not much, you know, bending the defense. Yeah, I mean, it's, and this has always kind of been how Kawhi has played to some degree. You know, even going back to San Antonio, if you watch – like, I, I still think that Kawhi peaked during that, that last healthy San Antonio year. I know he was amazing for Toronto in the playoffs, but the best Kawhi I've, I've seen is the year where, in my opinion, he should have won MVP, which is the year Westbrook won MVP. That that was a lot of side-to-side dribbling, to your point, a lot of, like, opening the floor and attacking. And there was a lot of sort of thrusting through guys to finish. Yeah, you really got that. That was the first year where you really got that, like, man, Kawhi is so goddamn strong. And because he would just sort of, guys would just belt off him. And then you saw a little bit less of that after the injury, but he still was able to kind of maintain his ability to get through most people, his ability to kind of hold on to the ball. I kind of, what I wrote about in the the finals uh, in 2019, I remember, is like he was really good at like sort of what I call turnover avoidance, like sort of those when the defense would collapse, he would be able to hold on to the ball and generate a free throw where most players would have turned it over. So there was some of that, but he was still sort of getting forward. And the last year, I think, yeah, he, he was a little bit less of that last year. And this year he's been a little bit less of that as well, a lot more kind of getting to his mid-range shot. You know, he looks a little bit more like 98 Michael Jordan than 96 Michael Jordan, right? And that's okay. Like, he is getting older. Like, he's still a great player. I just don't know if, like, if you built your entire team along the premise of we have a lot of great shooters, we're going to spread the floor and let our guys go one-on-one. You know, we're not we're a team that's, like, wing-heavy, but we don't really have a great point guard or a great sort of rim attacker up front, uh, whatever. We don't have, like, a Giannis. Like, this, we're going to space the floor. We're going to open up our, our attack and make it easier for our stars to get to the rim. If your stars are only, like, 85% as good at getting to the room as it used to be, like, suddenly now you're this is a real deficiency. Yeah, but I think it, it goes even uh, beyond just going and getting to, uh, to the rim. It's like, you know, the way that Kawhi gets into his spots, he just, you know, he, uh, like, he, he doesn't he, – he goes straight from, I guess, the defensive end to, uh, to the elbow. There's no ec- extra movement. It's just very, like – it's um, um kind of a – it's like a robot in a sense. He just goes straight to his spot, you know, no like d- d- detours or anything, and it just it really simplifies the defense. I feel that's something. I feel like that's something he used to be praised for, though, right? Like he was like, oh, he's so robotic. He gets to his spot, no extra movement needed. Kawhi he gets to his spot and he drills the mid-range shot. Yeah. But now it's kind of. I think Noah's right. Now it's kind of it's getting predictable almost, and it's something a defense can adjust to. And especially a team where Paul George, I'm sorry, is a bit redundant, that that it's a little easier to defend. Well, isn't isn't this funny? I mean, when when those two guys came together, 
we were saying, oh, man, like, this is a wings league, and they have two of the best two-way wings. Like, this is, like, what every team wants. And since then, all we've learned is that there actually is some diminishing returns to having your two best players be wing guys who like to have the ball and are probably better – will shoot the ball from mid-range or for long range. Like, there actually is some diminishing returns to that. I think you're seeing – although I love them, and I don't think they're the problem – I think you're seeing some of that a little bit with Boston, with Tatum and Brown. You know, mm-hmm. if those are your two best players, you better have some – your complementary players need to be highly specific in ways that, look, let's say a LeBron AD is a combination, that makes more sense. They complement each other a little bit more. So that's interesting. Um, and I agree. I think that's like – the thing that has made Kawhi really good is now the thing that seems like it's it's, it's a bit of a – it's hurting the team, but I think the, really the simplest explanation for that is he's just not quite as good at that as he was two years ago or three years ago. And the Clippers' hopes really come down to can he be that level of a player again? Because I'm not really sure what else they can do. I don't think a trade will really solve this problem to the extent that it needs to be solved. It may cause other problems elsewhere. No, oh, yeah. I also think the improvement will have to come internally. I guess it, it, um, if if I think about it, you know, I'd rat, probably yeah, I'd much rather have I guess Ty Lue with uh, last year's Clippers as opposed to this maybe because I just think like the the the, the small step that Kawhi uh, has has taken down in terms of you know just uh, stressing the defense that's the difference between you know. Uh, functioning offense and an offense that's a bit too reliant on jump shooting. Yeah, maybe. I mean, look, uh, it's one of those things that I just sort of have on my mind to watch and see how it plays out because I there's still a lot of time left. Kawhi has a history of sort of using the regular season to get in shape for the playoffs. They are still third in offense. I think the Nick Batum thing has really helped, although not as much as he did early in the season. They're still in pretty good position. It's just something I'm watching, like, down the stretch. Is is this – have we reached the point where Kawhi is no longer the level of player to have this style of play anymore? It's an open question to me at this point, and I'm just kind of curious to see. Because, look, if they don't win it this year and if they sort of, again, fall short of the conference finals, I mean, right now they're the four seed. They're the four seed. The third, oh, oh no, um, they, they have the same record as the Lakers, so I think they. The no, 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 no. They, no. I think they're a game behind the Lakers, or a half a game behind. Uh, yes, they're a half a game behind, but they do have a tiebreaker. Um, so they're behind the Lakers, and the Lakers haven't had Anthony Davis for most of the season. And the Jazz, obviously, there, there are a lot of questions, I'm sure, about how the Jazz perform in the playoffs. But I mean, it, it looks like. There's no guarantee they even make it to the conference finals. If they go two straight years again, making not making the conference finals, and this era closes down, and you consider everything they've given up, including Shea Gilders Alexander, who they kind of could use right now. Speaking of downhill uh, attackers, <laughs> I mean, there was a little bit of dialogue, right? When they made that, um, when they made the Paul George trade, people were like, "This doesn't work out." Well, that's Brooklyn. That's 2013 Brooklyn. <laughs> gotta, gotta specify well, now. Um, this is 2013 Brooklyn. Not 2013. Whatever year that was. The Paul Pierce trade. No, I, I think it was 2013. Again. Okay, 2013. Well, I, I think the thing with Shea and I guess where he is now, I, I don't think he would he would be as good as he is now if he did not have the same I guess path, which is you know you spend your first two years on a playoff team, spend a year under Chris Paul. And then have a third year where you're the lead guy and you yes, can make no, yes, mistakes absolutely. and you can de- develop. So I, I don't think he would have developed that way. I'm mean, as someone who's spent a lot of time watching Shea this year, but yeah, he'd be perfect. Honestly, yeah, I, I yeah, you're right. I mean, he would probably look a lot more like what he did in his first year as the Clippers with the Clippers, but a little better. But it's just you know sometimes look, you go for it and it's what you have to do. Um, but sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Even the thing, like I was just giddy about the Clippers when they first formed. I thought, oh my god, this is like the new super team in the NBA. Like, how could they possibly be worse than the Lakers? And it's taught me a few things about how teams come together. 
let's just say. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see what happens with them. Uh, I'm also very curious to see what happens with Utah. We obviously know what they're about now, but they have left, they left the All-Star game with this like angry, like kind of officiating situation in Philly. And they have a very delicate balance that I just wonder now that they kind of, people know what they're about. Like what is the response? Will Donovan Mitchell continue to play within himself or will he try to do too much? Could that hurt them? Will teams start to figure out some unique ways to guard the stuff they do? I think it's a very interesting, I mean, in, in general, you know, Utah and Phoenix this goes for as well in some degree. To what extent, like, was the beginning of the season really preseason for a lot of these teams? You know, like, I look at, like, if I'm Boston or my, I'm Miami, if I'm Dallas, if I'm Denver, I'm kind of amazed and thrilled that I'm where I'm at because given all the things that have gone wrong, I feel like all those teams are poised for big second halves. You know, will the teams that have raced ahead of them maintain their lead once maybe there's more tape on them? I'm very curious to see that. You think you'd include Boston there as a team who is like doing well despite the, uh, despite the con- I don't know consequences, despite the reality of the world. Well, Boston is now in, somehow in fourth place in the East, despite all the crap that they've been through this year, despite how disappointing their supporting cast has been, despite not having Marcus Smart for a really long time. You hear the talk out of there, and it feels like the sky is falling. And yet, because the East has been so jumbled, they're right in the mix where I think they're probably about where they thought they would be considering this has kind of been a transitional year after losing Hayward. And they're going to get Smart back, and they may make a trade using that big trade exception uh, to get somebody uh, to add to the mix. You know, it's just they're in fourth place, like despite all of it, and like despite everything that has gone wrong. I think it maybe applies a little more to Miami because like Miami has had more COVID absences. Although I'm not sure how much has been discussed about Tatum and how he hasn't looked quite right since his COVID diagnosis, and I believe he's admitted that he had some COVID issues. So you know, I look at those teams like they they were also two teams that played late into the bubble, you know. I'm not surprised that the teams that played late into the bubble go off to slow starts. You know, they their off seasons were slowest, for, were smallest, and they're in. I mean, look, they're in fourth place. So despite everything going wrong, they're getting smart back. Like, it could be so much worse for them. You know, they could be out really out of the playoffs. And so I, I think, given that they survived this gauntlet, I think that they're poised to play a lot better in the second half of the season. And Miami is as well. They've already started to play like that. You know, if you have, like, an all-star game and you only considered, like, what happened in the last month, Jimmy Butler would be a starter with the way he's played since coming back. So, I mean, those are two teams that I think have to be thrilled with where they're at, considering everything. That's a perspective I haven't heard, but I don't think I hate, honestly. So I what what, what is, what is this, the scary thing about Boston, then? What's the negative? Why wouldn't they play better in the second half than they did in the first? Well... I think they're definitely going to go and play a, a bit better. But when you just look at, uh, like, the, you know, the, the totality of their roster and where you you could project their ceiling to be this year, I don't think that they're part of the, like, top three teams at, um, in, in the East. They're definitely a tier down. So even though they'll be next to them in the standings, there's a pretty big gap there, at least I think. Probably. I guess – I looked at them this season. I didn't understand how they were in that tier in the first place. I guess the, that's sort of the, the way Milwaukee I... tier, the Milwaukee, Brooklyn, Philly tier. I didn't understand. Yeah. yeah, because, I mean, you look at, again, they lost Gordon Hayward and didn't get anything back for him, and they had a roster of kids. This always felt like a transitional year to me. Plus, you also consider the Kemba Walker injury setting them back, and he's going to get more rhythm. I don't know, maybe this is just a matter of expectations, but I feel like they're not going to end up being that far below where I thought they would end up being anyway. You know, maybe, I mean, last year I think they blew a golden opportunity to really go further than they did, but this year I really didn't think that they were going to make serious noise unless they swung a huge trade. Uh, This felt like sort of a reset. Let's see what we got in some of these young players. Like, how good is Robert Williams, Grant Williams, 
uh, Peyton Pritchard, how good is uh, some of the other guys that they have, uh, compete, get Tatum and Brown to be the faces of the franchise, and let's see where we're at in the future. That's sort of where I thought they were going to be all year. And any disappointment, I mean, obviously they're not, I thought they'd be better than this, but you know, any disappointment I think is a matter of sort of too high an expectation level in my thought, in my mind. And I think some of those expectations, some of the high expectations, are definitely part of, like, these young guys that they're just checking out. Like, they've been good. And Pritchard's been good. Well, besides Burnett, Neesmith. The, the young guys yeah, Neesmith, yeah. Neesmith. But Will, the Williamses have been good. Um, Pritchard's been good. But we have to remember that they're still rookies, and that's not going to contribute to a really true winning basketball just yet. Well, they're also, um, crucially, they're not – Shock creating rookies. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it seems like the things have played out how I thought they would, so I'm not as concerned. But I don't know. No, what, you, what were you going to say? Well, it's it's weird because I remember. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, in, in the bubble, the Celtics went throughout their whole bubble run without uh, Hayward. Right? He was most of the playoff yeah. run. Yes. Yeah, he, he was out for most of the playoffs. It was weird. So I was still uh, pretty high on Boston despite him leaving. So I was like, I mean, they just did it in the playoffs. And then even though they've disappointed as a team, just based on uh, Jalen Brown's emergence, they've probably surprised me. Because I, I think Jalen Brown, like, if you, if you want to uh, look at players through, through uh, tiers, as Seth Part now did over the summer, I think Jalen Brown hopped up the tier oh, yeah. this year. So that massively changes their He might have hopped up two tiers this year. He is insane. He uh he Euro stepped up two hops uh and then jump stopped uh watched the defender fly watched uh, players in lower tiers fly by and still was strong enough to finish and hop up into the the, the analogy kind of broke down. <laughs> um no, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh yeah. Um I don't know, I just I I, I just I, I think they're about where you know, the real problem there is, you know, why they haven't looked like the team that they did in the bubble is, like, is Kemba Walker's help. I mean, Kemba Walker was an all-star level player in the bubble, you know, until I know that there are some tough matchups in Miami, but, you know, that's a big difference. You take him away from your team, you take Smart away. It's a, I don't know. I just don't think, I think there's a lot of panic there, and I don't quite understand why. Um, but that's just me. Uh, most, I mean, I got to say, like, there haven't been too many things that have surprised me this year. I think I, I thought Utah has been better than I thought. Phoenix has been better than I thought. Um, what about San Antonio? Most, San Antonio has been better than I thought, but I, I don't know how long that's going to last, honestly. They have a, uh, a tough schedule coming up, too, in the second half. Yeah, I mean, they've been better than I thought, but I thought they'd be a little more competitive. Uh the Knicks really are the only team that's like, wow, that's that team's way different than I thought they would be. Did anyone at least hope that the Timberwolves would be a bit, uh, a little bit uh, better than they are? Not me. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, like, I, obviously, I expect them to be bad, but I mean, the Timberwolves are trying to win now. The Thunder are trying to lose as many games as possible, and the Thunder are like a couple of spots ahead of them in the standings. It's really. A travesty. Well, well, it just goes to show that you know you, there are two ends of the court, and if you can't play one of them, and you're losing, and you're the player who's responsible for most of what you do on the other end is a, is dealt with all the shit he's dealt with. Like you don't have a good team. You know, I feel like I feel like the Timberwolves just kind of wrote on a big whiteboard in their office. D'Angelo Russell was an All Star. Carl Anthony Towns was an All Star. We will yeah. make the playoffs. Like, <laughs> no, it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, but that Warriors trade looking quite good right now. Um, so I, the Knicks are really the only team that is like playing so much differently than I thought they would. I would say. Is there anyone who's um who's been a lot worse than you thought? Any teams? Uh, let me see the standings. Um. I know the the Wizards have picked it up recently, so I would have said them, but now they're starting to be a little bit better. Um, Everyone, New Orleans, sure. New Orleans, I think has been bad in a different way than I expected them to be. Like I thought they would 
I think a lot of people thought they would struggle offensively and be pretty stout defensively under Van Gundy, and it's sort of not happened. They've been bad in a different way. Um, but no, I mean, other than that, like I, a lot of it is just a matter of degrees to me. Like I, I thought Philly was underrated coming the year. They've been a little better than I thought, but I would, I, I thought Philly would be better than Boston. Um, Toronto, I was somewhat low on. They've been a little worse than I thought. But Atlanta, I was not too excited about. They've been a little worse than I thought. Uh, Charlotte, I thought would be pretty frisky, and they have been. I think San Antonio has been better than I thought. I, I think Portland has been a lot better than I thought, considering all that they've been going through. Oklahoma City has been a lot better than I thought. But, no, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's been a whole lot that has, like, kind of stunned me from a team standpoint, which is weird because I, coming into the year I had, like, the least certain amount of certainty about how these teams would function because of the pandemic. And, like, the end result has been more along the lines of what I thought would be the case than in most years. But maybe that's just me. I mean, who's a lot better? Who's a lot worse than you guys thought? I think New Orleans is probably a safe, a safe one to say. I didn't like how Van I'm sorry, Van Gundy hiring when it happened, and it doesn't look good now. I just thought at the most basic level of analysis, he's not a rebuilding coach, and you guys are in a rebuild whether you like it or not, so act like it. And clearly he isn't working his defensive magic. Miami's been disappointing. I mean, Dallas is technically disappointing. They're playing better lately. But these are kind of like covid like exemptions, there isn't there aren't too many teams that you can really strike down on. Oh, well, I have a disappointment. It, it, it's kind of it's kind of hard. Um, so the Trailblazers, I was pretty high on the Trailblazers before the season. I thought they did a really good job of uh, plugging in their holes. But then again, like half the like half the team's been out, half the starters have been out since I don't know when. So it's kind of hard to really judge them. But I thought when they were at full strength at the beginning of the season. They underperformed where from where I thought they would. I see what you're saying. So they they've been a lot. They they've almost played better without these guys than than with them. Yeah, it's kind of strange. They underperformed with their full team. Overperformed without it. I mean, I I like their them taking a flyer on a Harry Giles or Giles. Harry Giles, yeah. Giles, it didn't seem to to work out. Has he been Um, playing? No, he's he's out of the rotation. Oh my! So he might he might play a little more down. Might play a little more in, in the future, but yeah, I mean, they, you look at their team and they just they have. I said it. You sort of look at it before the season. Uh, when they made the conference finals, they did so with uh, two defensive-minded forwards in Aminu and Harkless, who. In the playoffs, teams sort of ignored. Aminu developed more, a bit more of an off-the-dribble game uh, than Harkless did. But in general, you know, they were just – after that playoff run, I believe they benched those two in game seven against Denver, played more offensive-minded players. They were like, you know what? We need more shooting. We can't – never again are we going to lose a playoff game because teams are loading off Aminu and Harkless. And then last year happens, and they were terrible on defense. So in the yeah. summer they got they got the they got two guys who play a lot like Aminu and Harkless and everyone's like oh wow I really love their off season but they basically just spun their wheels to get back to where they were um, and their defense still isn't that good so I mean I'm not saying that those it was bad to get Robert Covington and Derek Jones like and I also understand that they were sort of in the middle they had to make a decision on money on Aminu that maybe wasn't uh, something they could afford and blah 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 but it's like we really like what they did because they restored the team that they broke up. Well, you know I, I what think I mean? Roko, it's kind of weird. Yeah, Ro, well, Roko is probably an upgrade uh, over the two. And then also, I mean, he fared up uh, pretty well in the wild experiment that Houston had. I was just looking at this now. Is Zach Collins, I mean, he seems to be out for the season. Kind of forgot about him. Yeah, he's hurt again. He's hurt again. And they have, they have a lot of guys, too. Uh, I know they like there was a problem where they were playing Cantor and Mello together a lot more off the bench, and that was like kind of killing some of the rotations. And yeah, I just at the end of the day, like they are defensively deficient, and no amount of sort of covering that up is going to change that. But um, 
They also have Lillard, and Lillard is the type of player who, like, will go on binges and kind of save you when you're undermanned. So yeah. I think that's what explains that. I just I, – I really thought the defensive fix was there because you obviously have Nurk. Zach Collins, he's a four, but he's more of, like, a big four as opposed to a wing four. And then they also had uh, Rocco, who's a fantastic uh, help defender. I just thought they were building a, a, a solid uh, back line for their defense, but obviously not. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's tough uh, when – I think they also are – they tried to play a more aggressive style early in the season. It just, like, didn't work. I mean, I just – Terry South's an amazing offensive coach. I'm not sure how good a defensive coach he is. Uh, I, I Okay, I'll say one thing. I, I I thought Phoenix would be pretty good, but I thought they were more in the playing range, and they have played better. They yeah, have I, been more cohesive than I thought they would be. They they are fantastic. Like I've been, I think the most imp- – oh, sorry. The, no, no, it's okay. You, well, you go ahead. I think the most impressive part about Phoenix is that, like, Booker and um, Paul like, aren't even meshing to a T yet. They're still figuring it out, and the Suns are fantastic. Nevertheless, like they're once those two figure out how to play together and really maximize each other's strength, it's going to get even like more scary. Will they? Are will. we sure they will? I mean, like, what does that look like exactly? Is it honestly? I, I'm not sure because I've watched Suns play a bit, and I'm just I'm not entirely sure how they mesh. Because I mean, you know. Like a, a, a lot, of, like neither of them, or at least at, at this point in their careers, they're not particularly athletically uh, gifted, which is 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 fine. I mean, but it makes it like they're not too threatening off off the ball. I mean, obviously, but, 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 I mean Booker's fantastic, but I'm not sure how much you can expect from Chris Paul when you want to put Booker on ball. So, isn't this not that different from? Chris Paul, James Harden, Chris Paul, Shea Gilders Alexander, Dennis Schroeder. You know, I, he's thirty six now, though. No, I, I know, but I mean, as far as sort of style of play, it kind of feels like if you're playing with Chris Paul, you're gonna it's gonna look a little your turn, my turn, and as long as you're the only two players sort of taking many of those turns, it's okay. And Phoenix has a really well balanced team where. Great wing play. Mikhail Bridges is a terrific uh, off-ball player. Aiton can roll the basket. They've got some really tough uh, guys off the bench. I, I think Sarge is really in effect. Yeah, they they don't have like a lot of guys who need the ball in their hands. They just the two that do just happen to be their best players. So to me, it's never going to look like sort of Paul and Booker are never going to look like. What we envision, let's say, John Wall and Bradley Beal to be back in the day, where it's like peanut butter and jelly in terms of play style, playing off each other. Anytime you have Chris Paul on on your team, it's going to look a little your turn, my turn, because of how probing he is. And in Booker's case, like it seems like he needs he's very good with the ball in hands too. I don't, I just don't think it's a huge problem with the way their team is constructed. Now it may become a problem in a tight playoff series where getting buckets is going to be tougher. But, like, I'm not sure it's going to look any more fluid than what it is now, and I'm not sure what it looks like right now is really such a bad thing. All right. I oh, no, yes. Phoenix has been great. Wait, can I just quickly get this in? I think a disappointment has been uh, DeAndre Aiden on offense. I mean, he just, you know, he, he doesn't really – I mean, obviously, he, he he's absolutely massive. He's built like a, a statue of a Greek god. But he just – he doesn't put that much pressure on the rim. He's still, you know, finding his way around as, as a roller. I, I just feel like he could he could really juice up the offense if, you know, he posed more of a threat off, offensively. And yet, he's doing his job. It's It's sort of an interesting – you sort of it's it's just funny. You look at this team and Aiton. It seems like we're expecting more from Aiton and Booker in particular, where it's like those guys could be so much better. Like Aiton could be much more of a presence. You know, I look at the way Nick Vucevic plays in Orlando, and I think why can't DeAndre Aiton be a better ver- just as good as that? You know, taking trail threes, you know, scoring decisively in the post, like kind of being a hub. 
but still running pick and roll. Like it seems like that's a great roadmap, and there's more for him to accomplish. And yet, I and yet the team is doing so well I, I, to the point where it's like I think it's really hard to divorce their defensive style of play and their sort of cohesiveness from yeah, their their high flyers are going to look or best players are going to look a little bit muted. Because they kind of play with this rugged style. They don't play with as much space on the floor. They play, like, kind of slow pace and probing. Like, that's the trade-off that you have to accept. I mean, this is what I think a lot of people say about Booker in that this is what it means to sort of sacrifice your personal stats for winning. It looks something like this. Are we sure we want in to play like a Vucevic? Vucevic, yeah. Because, I don't know, I feel like that's a lot of jump shots for someone who – coming out of college was supposed to be an inside an at the rim presence. They don't have a lot of at the rim presence. Like all those role players you guys named earlier, Johnson, Bridges, Crowder, those are perimeter guys, even the big men like Sarich. So I don't know, I think I'd rather um I think I'd rather aim take more shots at the rim than be a Vucevic guy. Yeah, I mean the thing is I think he he is a physical uh, mismatch for the majority of the league, but the, the way he plays, he doesn't actually uh, force the issue. Like it, it's okay if if you put if you put a guy on him that can't match up physically, because Aiden doesn't really take advantage of, of the physical uh, mismatches. And I guess yeah, that's what I, I really want him to do. You know, really um, make make the opponent feel like they're playing against a guy who's seven feet tall, 250 pounds, and can move like a wing. Because he's just he, – you, you don't have to pay that much attention to him, really. You don't. You don't. I mean, I think some of it is – I don't know if he's ever been that player. I think he's always been pretty premier-oriented. I think – I do agree that, like, when he does get the ball, he does – down near the, the basket, he does sort of play a little timid, play a little cute. You know, all of that. But I also think that Phoenix is a team that plays very – their overall half-court spacing is much more – they play a much more physical, low-to-the-basket style of play. Booker catches the ball a lot inside the paint. Paul loves the mid-range. You know, they they are a prime cutting team. Even some of their guys that you talk about that are small, like Saric does not shoot a ton of threes. He plays a lot – going downhill, posting smaller players. They are a team where they have a lot of guys who like to kind of take that contact already. And I think actually presenting the threat of a trail three, the way Vucevic does, and would open the game up more for Aiden and allow him to show his more more of his skills. And it doesn't necessarily have to take away from, okay, if you get the ball like on a roll or in a block, you're going to go up strong with it. You know, so I actually think – I actually don't agree with, like, kind of this – it's 2021. I think it's better. I think there's a lot of value in stretching Aiton's game out, you know, especially when you consider how many other players in the Suns already are attacking the basket. Um, but that's a process, and I think that's something that's happening over time. And his sacrifice has made life easier for other players. And so I, I it's an interesting developmental quandary. Like, do you want to get the – make DeAndre Aiden produce as many points and rebounds as possible or Devin Booker produce as much as possible, or do you want to kind of have them suppress some things in order to help the rest of the team? I mean, it sure seems to be working out pretty well for them right now. Uh, it will be interesting, I think, if, as the game gets tighter, as teams start to catch up, you know, because their cohesion is such a huge reason why they are so good right now. You know, the way that they their defensive rotations are so on point for a t- for the rest of the league you know, the the timing of those sort of what we call 45 cuts where they're kind of coming from the top of the key and kind of cutting through the lane as uh, the ball is swung back out. Mikel Bridges gets like a ton of shots on that. As teams start to kind of time those better, do they have enough shot creation against tight defenses in the playoffs? It's going to be interesting to see. Like I, I would be very surprised if they're the two seed by the end of the year. Let's put it that way. But we'll see. I guess. Do you think they've peaked maybe a little early? The Suns. As far I like, I think they're playing. I think they probably have, but I don't think there's. I mean, when you're a team at that level, you peak. You play the best you can and peak when you can. They're not. They're not a team like who's won titles and needs to sort of. 
build up. Wait, are, are, you, are you asking this? Are you asking this as a like in this season, or are we talking like looking at the next three or five no, years? Like like this season. What I mean. Um. I mean, I think they probably have a bit a bit more left, but they've probably you know, um, reached more of their ceiling than other teams have reached there. So I, I think they're uh, ahead of the curve in that regard. But I think there's there's still a bit left to be uh, reaped. I guess um, kind of on this topic, what what should the Suns do about an Aiden extension? <sighs> Man. <laughs> they got a couple interesting sort of situations that come up with him and Bridges. I mean, I, I think in general, like, you overpay players at that age range because they tend to get better. So I don't think you pinch pennies at that age range. Um, it will certainly hurt their cap sheet to have to pay up for both of them, but I think it's worth doing. I think it's sort of one of those things. You can't – I don't think there's really any other choice. I mean, they have to – they're not going to be able to get equivalent value. He plays a position in need for them. You know, I, I don't really see – the purpose and trying to play hardball with either of those guys. That is, of course, one of the problems with having a team that is fits really well together um, is that it makes everybody look better, which means it makes everybody make more money. Yeah, I guess my main concern is I feel like just because, you know, he has that uh, he, he was the number one pick, that just adds an extra, I guess, $5 million a year to, to, to his deal just because, you know, that's – that's how stuff seems to work. But I think the Suns, I, I mean, this is in the past, but their biggest mistake was not, in my opinion, not drafting the point guard of the future to incubate behind Chris Paul. When? Well, I mean, obviously oh, the biggest, I mean, obviously the, the biggest yes. mistake, yeah, that 10 pick not looking so good right now. And obviously the biggest mistake is drafting Aiden in the first place. But, you know, look, we have to remember they have not made the playoffs – well, you know, instead of instead of Luca, and, I know, I mean, I yeah, guess. but they haven't made the playoffs in a decade. Like I think these conversations about peaking early and the long term future and all that, like, and they make more sense for a team that has already accomplished something. The Suns haven't accomplished anything yet. This anything they do this year is gravy. This is gravy. You know, that, let's 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 let them accomplish something. Um, all right, that's about all I got. Do you guys have any other questions? No. Nope. Thank Thanks you for coming on here. Yeah. All right, that has been this week's Locker Room Chat. We will do this again next week. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk then.